Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I just have a couple things to go over real fast before we get into the answers to your questions. One of them is that I wanted to uh, profusely and profoundly thank all of you for the amazing feedback that I got to the video that I posted on Thursday about Leah's show and the second season of her show specifically and how that has been impacting me and the world of Scientology. I um, talked about some things in there that were pretty personal and have uh, just almost almost no negative feedback of any kind, which was just amazing to me. And um, I, just, just no way I could answer all of the good wishes and thanks and, and respect and that sort of thing that you guys commented on. So I just wanted to say thank you right back to you guys because all of that really meant a lot to me. And, um, and I wasn't, you know, particularly feeling like I was in a, in a place where I was, you know, uh, looking for that, deserving that, you know, anything like that. But I do want to thank you all for that because it was, um, it was very, very nice to receive all of those communications from you guys. So all those comments and emails and even a couple calls. So thanks a lot. Uh, also, I wanted to um, just mention here that we had some uh, great Patreon activity this week that I wanted to comment on. We had some people sign up and some people increased their pledges. So just to acknowledge those people for the support they're giving to me and this channel, uh, I want to thank Mark Chapman for signing up. Claire Rack and She Chalker both uh, increased their pledges as well as Nina. Uh, Marcia Smith, Larry Marvin, Julie Marty, and Holly Edmiston. Thank you very much for your support to this channel. I really cannot thank you enough uh, because it's what you guys uh, have chosen to do to help me through Patreon so that I have more time and more energy and more ability to do what I'm doing here to get quality information to you about Scientology, destructive cults, thought reform, critical thinking, and um, and of course try to make it fun, interesting, and educa educational all at the same time. All right, with all that being said, let's go ahead and get on with the answers to your questions. Lori Pacheca, I'm interested in the period of time when all smaller Scientology orgs were told to have only OTs to run them. Could you explain this policy? Were you the manager of Pacific Orgs when this was being implemented? Any insider stuff about how this change worked in practice would be interesting. Like, did the OTs actually want these posts? Most were public Scientologists, I think. Well, actually, you're asking uh, the right person in a couple different ways, Lori. So let me, uh, uh, let me give you some history and background as best as I remember it. This was all, um, you know, 15, 13 years ago. So my memory is a little mm, on some of these things. But here's basically the sequence of events that led to the ideal orgs as far as I was concerned. At the time, I think this was 2002 or... Uh, or so, maybe 2003, I was in uh, management of the Western United States orgs, and I was over the delivery of those orgs. My post was called the Assistant Technical Aid for the Western United States, or the A-Tech Aid, uh, is how it was abbreviated, and that put me over all the auditing and training 
delivery uh, in uh, all of the West US orgs, all the orgs west of the Mississippi, all the way out to Hawaii. So in that capacity, I was sort of overseeing delivery and trying to get the get the, all the churches to, you know, get more people in and this kind of thing. And I've been doing this for many, many years. And then I got pulled up to the next higher echelon of management, which was over at the uh, Hollywood Guarantee Building or the HGB. And um, that that echelon of management was called the Flag Bureaus. And I was... Uh, going to go out on a mission, a Sea Org mission, which was called an observation mission. In other words, you go out and you don't do anything in terms of giving a bunch of orders and directions. An observation mission is simply to go out and get information, gather, gather data, uh, interviewing people, you know, getting information, maybe doing some surveys or whatever. And there's all kinds of observation missions that have been done for all kinds of reasons. But, for, but this one was specifically, I was shown a dispatch that apparently had 11 points on it, I don't remember all of them, that were written by David Miscavige. And this had to do with, this was called the Buffalo Program. And this was uh, because it was named after Buffalo Org, uh, the Buffalo Church of Scientology, where they had done some kind of number, uh, or were looking at doing some kind of number. Oh yeah, the Buffalo, yeah, the Buffalo um, pattern right, or the Buffalo strategy. It was, I was called both of those things. And, um, and basically, one of the points of these 11 points was it was, a, it was a series of actions to take in order to get the orgs going and get them moving and get, the, and get more activity going and get the field around the org, all the Scientologists in their area, more active. And one of the points on there was to get a bunch of auditors and another point was to um, revamp or revitalize the, the flag trained technical staff who were there. But another one of the points, and this one ended up being a huge point, was to recruit, you know, get the OTs on board get them recruited, make them the executives of the, of the orgs. And this was a direct target, uh, you know, directive from David Miscavige. So the observation mission I was going to go on was to go to San Jose to the Stevens Creek org and the Mountain View org and, and maybe the San Francisco org, but definitely in the South Bay area. And also there's a Los Gatos, there's a Church of Scientology in Los Gatos, so I was going to go to San Jose, I was going to go to Stevens Creek, and survey who were the OTs in that area, who should be joining staff, who, who of those OTs should be executives. And I didn't end up going on that observation mission because um, I mentioned my post title was the assistant technical aide for the West US. Well, at that senior level of management was a guy whose job was the technical aide or the tech aide. He was my senior giving me directions from that level and he saw that I was going to be yanked to go do this mission and he was like, yeah, no, not you. you, you I need you doing what you're doing on your job. And so he nixed that and I didn't end up going on that observation mission, which would have been the very first mission fired out to implement or start getting data to implement this Buffalo strategy or Buffalo pattern, which became the ideal org strategy and the ideal org pattern, right? Where they renovate the buildings and do all this fundraising and do all this stuff. That fundraising activity we talk about because of the uh, you know, nonsense and pressure and high sales, you know, high pressure sales tactics and all that that gets used. But there was a more to the ideal org strategy than just 
buying a building and renovating it. This, and this business of getting the OTs on staff as the executives of these orgs was a key part of this strategy. And, um, and so it, it ended up, as the years progressed and as the strategy rolled out, excuse me, it, um, it became not a requirement that the ED, the executive director of all the, all the various churches that we were renovating and building up and making ideal, they didn't always have to be OT, but it was way preferred. It was pushed, like, let's find OTs, let's get OTs on as the, as the EDs, as the deputy executive directors, as the executive council, which is three staff who exist underneath the executive director and run the various areas under, you know, the, 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 um, there's an HCO executive secretary, an org executive secretary, and a public sec executive secretary, and they each have three or four divisions under them that they run. And minimally, it was wanted that that executive council and the ED and the DED, the deputy executive director, uh, would all be OTs, right? And, uh, and so searches were being done, fields were being scoured, uh, to, and recruitment missions were firing out to get these OTs specifically recruited. The idea being that an OT, even if untrained, would be more capable and able than the EDs who were running these orgs into the ground, as far as David Miscavige was concerned, because the orgs weren't going anywhere, they weren't doing anything really very productive, they weren't expanding and successful. And Miscavige blamed the org executives, and of course, I'm sure he had his share of blame to us managers as well. Uh, we were certainly feeling some of that wrath. Not personally, they didn't come down and beat on us or anything, but we were getting the orders, you know, down the lines. So this ideal org thing, this buffalo pattern, was a whole change, and I got very excited about it. Because at the time, being in the position I was in, I was ready for a change. And it looked like David Miscavige was taking a personal interest in the orgs and getting things going with the orgs. And it looked like these targets were sensible things to do within the context of the world of Scientology. Because OTs are, of course, supposed to be more able and more aware and more perceptive and this kind of thing. We wondered about the fact that they weren't trained. We, didn't, we weren't down with that. From a management level, we knew that if you, weren't, if you were going to be the ED of an organization, you had to know what you were doing. And... Um, and if you were going to do it right. And, uh, and the executive training for a lot of the org EDs was really just sort of trial by fire and, you know, flying by the seat of their pants, learning as they went. But many of them had been on for so many years that they knew the ropes. They knew how things worked. They knew how to get things done and keep the doors open at least and, and try to comply with all the, you know, panoply of orders that we were sending them all the time which, of course, were coming from Miscavige mainly, uh, but we didn't really know that, right? We thought that there was still the ED Int and, and these various senior executives on post doing their jobs. We didn't know about the whole. We didn't know about the conditions at the Int base. We didn't know that Miscavige had, had been, you know, uh, just doing a sort of a slash and burn up there with all those people. And so we thought that these guys were all still there doing their jobs, we were doing our jobs, and we thought that's how things were running. I didn't find out till years later that Miscavige was, you know, kind of single-handedly doing uh, what was going on as far as management was concerned, which now makes a lot of sense as to why it was so insane. 
Anyway, um, so that was kind of the strategy as it rolled out and I and then it wasn't a very successful strategy because as you can see all the ideal orgs are really as we call them ideal morgues uh, because they are dead and whether you have an ED who is an OT or not that's not the determining factor as to whether the place is going to be viable and successful. Uh, you know, if you want a viable, successful Scientology organization, you need to be out there selling books and getting new people to come in and getting them on services and getting the pay for those services and getting them moved on up the line, which is a near Herculean task at this point, given the toxic public recognition of Scientology's name. Uh, which is all 100% at, you know, the responsibility for that is at David Miscavige's feet uh, and, and fists. <laughs> so uh, Anyway, so that's kind of how that whole thing rolled out. And I hope that gives you a little bit of history um, as I saw it and experienced it. Um, you know, when I went back after not doing that observation mission, I went back down to the CLO in, in, uh, in Los Angeles at the Big Blue. And I went back on my job, but now I knew something other people didn't know. And I was really interested in how this was going to roll out. And it rolled out with a lot of pressure and a lot of heat to get these OTs going on to staff. And, um, and they did end up sending recruitment missions to the Bay Area and then to other areas where they started building up these ideal organizations. So that's kind of, that was another part of the whole big picture as you've uh, learned about it here and in other places. Free drone ads. If Pat Broker had taken charge of Scientology when LRH passed away instead of David Miscavige, how different do you think Scientology would be today? Well, this is a funny question because this was actually the subject of a recent Facebook discussion uh, in a uh, group that I'm a member of where people who were around back when the brokers were busted, they were talking about this time period and they were talking about the consequences of, of David Miscavige having taken over. I think this was in response to Leah's recent show about David Miscavige. And I, of course, wasn't there. So everything I say is based on, you know, conjecture of, uh, you know, of my own and other people's that I've listened to or heard or talked to. Um, and the stories and testimonials of people that I've heard who were there at the international base at the time. And the opinions are varied. But my take on it is that um, I think if a benign person had taken over Scientology, and there was an attempt to do that, um, there was an issue put out, well, as, as you saw on Leah's show probably, there was this issue from Pat and Annie Broker, we're going to you know, be loyal officers, and they were going to take over and run the show, and then the next day David Miscavige ousted them. Had that not happened, and had David Miscavige, you know, there's a lot of different variable scenarios here, like, well, what would have happened to David Miscavige then? Or are we thinking maybe David Miscavige would have been ousted by the brokers if they had been put into power, right? Because he was running around being a little poison pill. But he was also the guy who at that time, back in 1986 when Hubbard died up to 1987 when that whole power struggle happened, Miscavige was the guy who was running the show. He was the executive director of author services International uh, or Author Services Inc., whatever, ASI, which was Hubbard's literary agent, but it was the, the place where all the money was when Hubbard was alive. That was where the royalties were going to. He was running that show. When Hubbard died, Miscavige realized that RTC, the Religious Technology Center, 
was the new base of power for Scientology and that was the organization he needed to be in charge of and that was why he went in there and kicked out Vicki Asneran and Jesse Prince and and installed him and his um, you know sycophants uh, which was Marty Rathman, um, Mark Ingber, Mark Yeager and Ray Midoff. Those were the guys who were working with Miscavige to oust the old regime of RTC and, and they took over and he then became the chairman of the board of Religious Technology Center. So, so if none of that had happened and, and Annie just took over and Pat took over, what would Scientology be like? Well, I've said before that it didn't have to go the way that it went and it could have been a kind or gentler Scientology. It's all really a matter of what policies you emphasize. And I don't know Annie Broker. So I don't know what policies she and operating patterns she would have emphasized. But what I do know is this. Hubbard's pattern of operation, the organizing boards, the, the executive structure, the corporate structure, the organizational structure, I kind of make this motion of like, you know, the structure as I laid out in the video called Scientology's Organizational Madness. I lay that whole structure out. And then I show how David Miscavige bypassed it and, and sort of undermined the entire thing. Had Annie Broker taken over that structure and tried to benignly run it, uh, according to Hubbard's best policies and the best possible interpretation of his policies, you would still have a built-in mechanism of defeat within the structure of the organization, as I laid out in that video, uh, which you'll have to watch because I'm not going to, I don't have the time to explain it all here. So, so, so Hubbard's policies just don't work when it comes to running an organization. And I imagine that had she taken over, she would have tried very, very hard to implement those policies in the way that Hubbard wrote them. And she would have found that it's a disaster. Um, now, Miscavige's solution to that was to just, you know, become a complete asshat and beat on people and, and you know, take out his frustrations on everyone and uh, just sort of single-handedly kind of try to run the whole show. Well, that's not very workable either, and you can see the results of that. Uh, the whole thing is tanking. Scientology doesn't need to be tanking. There's really no reason for it to be. There's plenty of oddball, goofy organizations out there that are totally successful, <laughs> uh, despite their goofy organizational structure or bureaucracy or hierarchy of fools and all the stuff that goes on, they still manage to make some money, keep the doors open, and, and, and get new members in, right? So uh, there's, I don't imagine that if Annie had taken over that there would have been beatings and, you know, morale won't, you know, will, the beatings will continue until morale improves, you know, this kind of thing. I that wouldn't have been how she ran the show. But I don't know that given Scientology's uh, disconnection policy, given the fact that the Office of Special Affairs would still exist and their tactics would still be the same because they are based on Hubbard's dictates not wholly just Miscavige's, right? So unless Annie had just sort of sidelined OSA and sidelined disconnection as a practice and actually stuck up for the fact that that was not something to do and we're not gonna be separating families and breaking up businesses and this kind of thing, unless she had taken those kind of measures, Scientology would still pretty much be in the same, you know, or a very similar place I think now that it, you know, that it is. So, 
that's kind of my long-winded reasoning on all that. I could talk about this a lot more as far as all kinds of minutiae of this, but bottom line is I don't think a benign ruler is uh, or leader was the solution that Scientology needed in order to not be the destructive cult that it is. It's simply, as I said from the very first video I ever made, uh, the destruction of Scientology is in its DNA. And there is no amount of leadership that's going to overcome that unless they turn it into something so different that it really isn't Scientology anymore, under, as, as L. Ron Hubbard described it. And that's my personal take on that whole thing. Imagination. I run a day program for disabled adults. I'm curious as to how the cult feels, discusses, or treats the disabled. I haven't seen anything about it on Leah's show. Generally speaking, in Scientology organizations, disabled people are not given the boot or given short shrift if they have money. Remember that Scientology is a money-making scam first, and everything else is window dressing. There are policies about if somebody has neurological damage or is physically incapable of being audited or being trained for some reason, then no, they're not, Scientology is not going to be super keenly interested in dealing with that because they don't have facilities for it, really. They don't have people who are trained in, in dealing with, you know, like severely mentally handicapped people or something like that. But when it comes to just people who are in wheelchairs or have physical disabilities, they'll service those people the same way they'll service anybody else. In fact, I saw in Twin Cities in my last mission there, there was a woman who came in who was unable to walk, was in a wheelchair, a motorized wheelchair, and she was getting auditing and she was getting a ton of auditing and she was paying for it. Um, she was getting a lot of objective processing, which I've described in other videos. So that was a lot of touching and feeling things and stuff like that. And she was having, you know, some wins and gains with that. She uh, wasn't walking again or something, right? There was an instance of her getting up out of her wheelchair uh, and hobbling around on a cane, but that was something she could do before she came in, and she was just felt more able to do it because of the euphoria, but then, you know, two days later, I saw her back in the wheelchair, so it wasn't like this was a permanent, you know, uh, cure for her nerve damage in her legs. Uh, but she enjoyed the auditing she was getting, and we enjoyed taking her money, <laughs> so that's kind of how that went. And I don't know what the end result of her involvement was because I left Twin Cities before, uh, before that, that happened. I don't imagine she's still involved, but I, I really don't know. Over the years that I was in, there weren't special policies that I can recall as I sit here about disabled people. Um, it's really a matter of if you can hold the cans, uh, then they can audit you. And you can hear commands and answer them, then they can audit you. Um, if you can't hold, by the way, if you can't hold the cans in your hands because maybe your hands are messed up, there are foot plates also, by the way, uh, or wrist straps also, where there are metal straps that you can put on a person's wrists, and those conduct the e-meter's electricity through the body the same way it does when you hold the cans in your palms, and you get the same, you get different, slightly different, uh, you know, uh, sensitivities and, and, um, settings on the e-meter in order to make it work, but you still get similar reactions on the meter because the meter, you know, works the way that it works. It's registering stuff with the body. So anyway, that's um, pretty much everything I can say about disabled people. Not a big thing, right? 
um, did not really ever see disabled people joining the Sea Org. That, that never happened. Uh, and people who were in the Sea Org who became disabled when, while they were in the Sea Org, um, like there was a guy who had developed MS and ended up in a wheelchair and he ended up out of the Sea Org. They ended up fitness boarding him, which means they found him unfit to remain in the Sea Org. Um, uh, Tom uh, something, his, his name was uh, Aramento, yeah. So, um, but he remained a Scientologist and kept coming around the orgs and kept doing services and stuff. So anyway, that's, that's pretty much it on that. KLS. Greta Van Susteren's sister is a world-renowned psychiatrist. Would Greta, as a celeb, be allowed to remain connected to her? What if a normal public Scientologist had a psychiatrist sibling? What kind of pressure do you think the church puts on Greta to handle her sister? Would Greta have to get constant auditing to handle her relationship with her sister? Well, there's no question the church would consider a familial relationship with a psychiatrist to be alarming and definitely in need of handling. But how they would go about handling that would be individual per, per person, but it's basically going to come down to one of two things. And I've explained with PTS handlings before, potential trouble source handlings, uh, that uh, that you have to handle or disconnect. Now the handle step is really just making sure that that person, the psychiatrist in this case, is not giving you a bunch of crap and that the contact between you is minimal. It wouldn't have to be a full disconnection though. If that psychiatrist's uh, sister or brother or father or whatever was leaving you alone to do your Scientology in peace and never said anything about it, and you didn't really see the person that often anyway, maybe at family reunions or get-togethers, it's kind of a non-issue, right? You're not going to encourage that psychiatrist family member uh, to do their psychiatry. You're not going to be okay with that. You'll probably make it known that you're not okay with that, but you're not going to be required to disconnect from that person if there isn't you know, a, a, a need to, right? Now, if that psychiatrist person is, um, but, but here's the thing, what I'm saying is according to the rules written by L. Ron Hubbard in the policies, how those are implemented could be varying, can be quite different over different time periods and in different places. I could easily see some ethics officer at some, you know, at some random org uh, deciding that just because this person is a psychiatrist, that's it. You got to sever ties, man. Psychiatrists are out to do the world in. They are evil. They must be destroyed. And you can't have any contact with that person anymore. But that's not the kind of thing you're going to tell a celebrity. And it's not the kind of thing that you're going to tell somebody on day one, right? You're going to build into this, right? And if you, un if you understand what I was talking about in my podcast this week about coercive persuasion and thought reform, you'll understand it's a gradual series of steps, right? You slowly build up to the extremist thinking. You don't just enter into that right away. So they might be told on day one, oh, your sister's a psychiatrist. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that. And then, you know, a month or two later, they might circle back around and go, so how's your sister thinking about you doing all this Scientology stuff? How's that going? You know, and they'll kind of feel it out and see what you're thinking and what you're doing and stuff. And, and, uh, how the relationship is going, how often you're seeing this person, right? They'll just start gathering information on it. And as time goes on, you will be more and more discouraged from having any contact with that person ideally. 
but minimally, the minimum level of handling for that kind of a connection would be what's called good roads, good weather. This is a this is a literally a technical term in Scientology for when you do see that person, you only discuss things of, of a social nature. Good roads, good weather. Everything's great, everything's fine. No problems. You would not ever get into personal problems or difficulties with your psychiatrist sister. You would never, you know, lean on them for help. You would never go to them for assistance with anything. It's just all good roads, good weather. Everything's fine. Couldn't be better. And how are you? Right? And that's a, that's what's called good roads, good weather. So, um, or fair roads, fair weather is another way they put it in Scientology. So that would be probably the level of handling Greta has with her sister, and um, and that's you know that would be the minimal level, and of course the maximal being disconnection. Ferdinand Rise, I have a couple questions about the Flag World Tour video, which has been on YouTube for a while now. Was this video produced to bring more public to Flag after the death of Lisa McPherson? That is, if there was a drop in numbers at FLAG after the tragedy. Secondly, what were your opinions of the video and FLAG's big promises both when you were in Scientology and after you left? Alright, well the FLAG World Tour is actually something that happens every year and has since the, I think, mid-19, um, well not 19, yeah, actually, yeah, since the mid-1970s, because Flag was originally on the ship, on Hubbard's ship, the Apollo. Then they moved to land in Clearwater in like 75 or 76. And this tour was a, a, a pattern, an operation that would go where people would go out. The Flag World Tour is where a couple staff from Flag uh, go out to all the orgs all over the world. They fly all over with a video or with promo or with information about FLAG and try to, you know, rile up and excite the local Scientologists in each area about FLAG services and get them to come to FLAG uh, and pay big money to FLAG and try to reg them for the money right then and there on, as part of the tour. So the tour's job is to make money and create good repute for FLAG in all over the world. And they do this every year. So every year there's a new video. Uh, and we used to see these things and we were always, you know, I was in West US, so FLAG was not my thing. I, I, you know, I went to FLAG like once the whole time I was in the Sea Org. So I was not really interested in FLAG's prosperity. I was more interested in what we were doing over in the West US, but FLAG is Mecca of Scientology, and FLAG is the biggest service organization in the world. And, uh, you know, in the world of Scientology, FLAG is the only place you can do certain things. The upper, upper OT levels, uh, you know, OT uh, 6 and 7, uh, FLAG-only rundowns, and thing, now, now they have superpower and the cause resurgence rundown and all this kind of nonsense. And uh, the FLAG World Tour promotes all these things. Come to flag, come to flag, right? And this was a very successful pattern that Hubbard, that happened first in the early 1970s. And uh, then it just kind of, and Hubbard saw that this happened and, you know, that they sent people out and a flood of people came to the ship. And he was like, we're, we're going to keep doing this, right? And, uh, and so this pattern went into play. I do not, you know, I was never impressed, super impressed with FLAG, uh, and, and of course now that I'm out of Scientology I could care less. Uh, so that's kind of my 
take on the whole thing. Uh, but because flag is the number one income source for Scientology, and because as I've mentioned, flag, uh, you know, Scientology is a money-making scam, uh, flag gets a ton of attention and support and backup from management and from Miscavige and uh, from all of Scientology. So that's, you know, kind of how flag is viewed and why it is that cooperation uh, is expected with the Flag World Tour no matter where they go. Whoa! Whoa! Freddie Mercury has spoken. It is time for Flash Answers. Mark Peter, I have a question regarding auditing and crimes, etc. In A&E's program on Scientology, a young lady said her father came to her and apologized for molesting her. When you're being audited and you're remembering past lives, could you remember doing a crime in a past life, like killing or raping someone? If so, could you then go up to someone you have harmed in your previous life and apologize? The auditee may be innocent but has to recall crimes from a past life, basically making up nonsense. Forgive me if this is an odd question and delete it if it's not appropriate. No, Mark, there's nothing inappropriate about your question, but it is kind of funny. Uh, no, people don't do that in the regular course of their auditing. Uh, the, in the case with Miriam's father, as detailed on Leah's show, he was getting security checking, and he was obviously getting security checking that was um, of a non-confidential nature, what they call an HCO sec check. And he was made to then go and apologize to his daughter about that, which was just disgusting. And the way the whole thing, the, the way that whole thing was handled, was absolutely gross. Um, but in the regular course of auditing, people recall past life crimes all day, every day. And no, they don't go try to make up for it by finding who it is that they harmed in a past life uh, and apologize to them. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. Dusty Bills. Hello, I was Googling what is Scientology and there was a free online personality test. I was going to take it just to see what it said, but it asks for your phone number. That scared me because I've heard of them harassing people. So what do they do if you put in your phone number? The online personality test, or OCA, is graded, and then they call you and tell you to come into the org so you can get your results. They do not send you the results of your personality test. You have to go into the org in order to get them. That's the hook, right? So when you, so they want your phone number so they can call you and contact you about your test results. And of course, if you give them their phone number, they're going to call you whenever they want. Lena Sith Lady. I was wondering if you had any information on Will Smith and his family being involved with the church. Did you ever see them at events or at Celebrity Center? They seem to be keeping it on the down low. Well, funny you should ask, Lena, because this has been, uh, this just came up with Jada and uh, Leah actually kind of duking it out a little bit on on the media because uh, Leah, you know, said that, that Jada's a Scientologist and Jada was like, I am not and denied it up one side and down the other. And uh, that's, you know, kind of what happened just the other day. Uh, but it looks, it appears that Will Smith has, was dabbling in it, is not really into it. Tony Ortega has uh, actually reported on this in detail on his blog, The Underground Bunker, and you can check out his, his news stories on it. But the, it doesn't look like the Smiths are, are hardcore Scientologists at all. And if Jada's messed around with it, it doesn't look like she's doing that now. If she is and she's lying in the media, well, that's a huge mistake on her part because that's going to come out. But uh, they've definitely been involved with it in the past, but don't appear to be so hardcore now. 
Okay, and that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around. Thank you for your questions, feedback, questions, comments, anything. Put them in the comments section below. I will see them. I will get to them and put them in my question queue. I will talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.